Uh, good evening. It's wonderful for everyone to come out tonight to hear Peggy Grand uh, discuss her book, The President Will See You Now. It's uh, delightful, informative, really interesting, and um, uh, this is uh, just terrific to be in the highest spirit of bipartisanship where a Waxman-Pelosi Democrat can get together with a Reagan Republican and uh, uh, have some common cause together. So we'll have a good fun. Looking forward, really look forward to, to the discussion. <laughs> Uh, but I want to start, as uh, we always do here, with the uh, acknowledgement of the traditional owners of the land. Um, we want to pay our respects to the traditional owners, uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, and it's on their ancestral lands that the university sits and uh, operates. Um, we share our own knowledge, teaching, and learning and research positions with this university, with them. And may, we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever in the aboriginal custodianship of country and to the leaders past, present, and emerging. And we're honored to do so. Um, I was uh, really just so happy to be asked to uh, host this conversation with Peggy, uh, who's come from Los Angeles. And why don't you, have. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the, about the book, why you want to write it, and what you wanted to achieve in doing that. I don't know that I set out to write a book. Um, in fact, with proximity to a person like President Reagan comes a sense of stewardship and responsibility. And in fact, I was probably opposed to the idea of writing a book. Um, but I spoke at a conference a couple of years ago, and there was a gentleman from who, the US Studies Center that um, studies the presidency. And he came up to me afterwards, and he said, Peggy, you have to put your stories in book form. And I kind of pushed back on him. But he said something that completely changed my perspective. He said, if there was a woman who sat out Outside Abraham Lincoln's office door for 10 years. Don't you think we would want to know what she saw, what she learned, what she observed? And don't you think she would owe it to history to tell us? So it kind of changed my mind. I still wasn't going to write a book, but just through the most amazing set of circumstances, I was presented with a contract from a top publisher in the US. And that doesn't happen by accident. So I stepped bravely into this task of trying to write an interesting book about Ronald Reagan. I knew I had seen him differently, but there's a thousand books about Reagan. So yes. how do you stand out? But mine's very personal, not political. It's, it's and personal, so, not political. And it's also yeah. after his service as president. Absolutely. And so. you were a student at Pepperdine University. Yes. Uh, you went to see a speech, see him talk, <laughs> and he had been a hero of yours. He had been. So why don't you tell us about that first sighting of Ronald Reagan? Yeah, I did not grow up in a political family at all. My family were actually educators. And there was something about politics and presidents and government that just fascinated me. So from the time I was very young in elementary school, I was the kid always going to the library asking if they had any new books about presidents or first ladies or Washington, DC. I lived on the West Coast in Los Angeles. It might have well as been a million miles from Washington, DC, never imagining that my ordinary life would ever cross paths with that extraordinary man and not only in a chance meeting but to have the opportunity to work for him and serve him so closely for over a decade it's fantastic uh, let's just get into the book and some things that you said I mean you write early in the book Reagan took a fractured country that doubted itself and gave it something to believe in again um, how did he do that um, what were the qualities that you saw in him that enabled that to happen yeah, you know, we knew him as the great communicator, but I also think we knew him as the great optimist. And so we look at the 1970s, and if you know anything about the 70s in the United States, taxes were high, unemployment was high, inflation was high, and worst of all, American morale was very low. And so Ronald Reagan took office, and on day one of his presidency, he completely changes the narrative by saying things like, it's morning in America. There's a new dawn ahead. There's a shining city on the hill, and we're all going to be part of it. And if it's interesting because at the end of his presidency, after those eight years, if you asked him what was most what he was most proud of, it wasn't any of the policies that he was implementing during those years. It was the fact that he made the American people believe in themselves again. And he certainly did that through optimism and then through a plan of action that took regulations off the backs of businesses and got government out of the way and unleashed the entrepreneurial potential of the American people. So my question is, uh, how would he view America today? Because it's not the America that he served for and left. Yeah. And uh, what would he want done today? Yeah. You know, when you look at what's happening in the American political scene, I think you have to separate the style and the substance. <laughs> because if we look at what's happening substantively... Your style with this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Stylistic elements. You may not agree with them, but um, if we take away the style and we look at the substance of what's happening in the United States, we have historic low unemployment across all sectors. We've got rising wages. We're on a pathway to energy and 
dependence. And so we've got highest GDP growth that we've had in decades. And so substantively, economically, what we see happening in America is unprecedented, even compared to what Reagan did. We look at the style, what's happening, and I think that's what a lot of people get hung up on with this president in particular. Do, do you think uh, Reagan would be concerned with the tearing of the fabric of the country under Trump? Well, Trump is actually listening to a very different group of people than have historically been listened to. And in a lot of ways, maybe it's a group of people that haven't been spoken to since Reagan. You know, Reagan was from the heartland of America. He was born in a small town to a family that was very poor. His father was an alcoholic. If you looked at the cards of life he had been dealt, you would have thought, this poor kid will never amount to anything. And yet he's the epitome of the American dream. And so those are the people that Reagan spoke to. And in a lot of ways, the irony is, we've got this blue-collar billionaire, Donald Trump, who is speaking to those same people in the heartland of America. And so you get a very different um, answer when you ask people how they're feeling about things in America. That's true. We'll come back to some politics okay. a little bit later, but, but you're from Orange County. I mean, that's where you I grew am. up. That's your home. It was Republican when you grew up. It's Democratic now. Why, yeah. was, why was that? Yeah. How, how did that happen? The demographics definitely have changed, and also we see just the coastal areas in our big cities and some of our big states um, changing a lot. Um, I think people would be surprised even in California, if you look at the electoral map in 2016, even of Donald Trump, if you break the state down by counties, yes. the state is entirely red, which for us as the conservatives would have been in favor of Donald Trump. You've got this coastal blue area. And so there's this illusion that the entire state is very left leaning politically. Um, and that's not an accurate reflection of what's happening. Um, we also have some crazy, without getting into the details of what we have some crazy things in California, like ballot harvesting, like a jungle primary where you can have two candidates from the same party and no Republican candidates even on the ballot for Republicans to vote in, for. In California, so. when you have a primary, it's the top two candidates, regardless of party, who face off in the general yeah. election. Yeah. So you can have two Democrats run against each other, yeah. two Republicans. So in 2016, for example, over 800,000 Californians, registered Republicans in California, only had one Republican on their entire ballot to vote for, and that was Donald Trump. Right. So I'm not sure that there's true democracy anymore in <laughs> California. <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger did that reform. Yeah, interestingly um, enough. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Reagan. Reagan and the camera. I mean, mm -hmm. he loved it. It loved yeah, him. It did. <laughs> what were the, why was he so good in front of a camera? He was comfortable in front and of a camera. And you took a lot of pictures of him. I did. In fact, I took this photo that's on the front page of the cover of this book. Wow. I snapped it in his office one day. I walked into his office post-presidency, and it was as if it was studio lit. There was just this perfect lighting, and I wasn't particularly a great photographer, but again, you said he liked the camera. And I looked at him, and I said, Mr. President, you look especially handsome today. Do you mind <laughs> if I take your picture? And in his typical, well, all right. <laughs> So I went and grabbed the camera and snapped one photo and never imagined 20-something years later it would wind up on the cover of a book. But he, he had great poise, he right. had great presence, he had a confidence and a comfortable um, comfort, comfort with the camera. But he that always knew where the camera, the camera was, right? He always knew where the camera was. In fact, I don't, I don't know if you read um, that part of the book yet, but he tells a funny story about when he was in Hollywood, he admits he was a B actor. He wasn't the top tier actor, he was a B actor. and so. His little strategy for that is when the John Waynes of the world and the Errol Flynn's step to the middle of the photo, he would always step over to the far left. Right. Because oh. when that photo went yes. to print, it would say in photo from left to right, Ronald Reagan, and his would be the first name. <laughs> when Trump takes a photo, he gets rid of everybody yes. else. Okay. Um, Let's talk about Mrs. Reagan. I met Mrs. Reagan. I was in a government relations firm in Washington. A partner of the firm was very close with her. Uh, Nancy Clark Reynolds, who was uh, Ronald Reagan's first communications director, mm -hmm. and the first time a woman had been communications director to, uh, to, to a governor in California. And, uh, and she was, so she, would, she invited Nancy Reagan over to the firm for lunch. And she was extremely gracious. She was um, almost waif-like. I mean, she was really... She was very petite. She was very petite, <laughs> very petite. Um, and she uh, had this uh, warmth about her, mm -hmm. but she was also reading the room. At the, she was reading everybody Absolutely. at the same time. So 
tell me more about her. She was very astute. She had good instincts. But tell us more about her. And she was seen as being very protective of Reagan. Uh, tell us about that, too. Yeah. All that is very accurate. She had incredible instincts. She always had the president's back. Um, she could read people and was unafraid sometimes, I think, to be the bad guy so that he could be the good guy. Right. You know, here I was a very young woman working for her husband, and I learned early on there was two things that were important to her loyalty and the truth. And so I learned that you told her the truth, you told it straight, you didn't sugarcoat it, you didn't even try to solve it or fix it, you just expressed the truth. Um, and then loyalty. And she knew that I was ferociously loyal yes. to her and to her husband. And that's why she always was very warm and welcoming. I used to especially love to watch her up at their home when they were entertaining dignitaries and visiting VIPs in their home. And to picture her as just such a gracious hostess. Yes. And that hospi hospitable side of her was very warm and welcoming. And a lot of criticism of her, obviously, but a lot of that was people who hadn't seen her specifically in that role and what a beautiful host she, she, she wanted was. everything to be perfect around him she right? did she was very aware of the details from the how it looked when you entered to the temperature of the room to the backdrop to the lighting she was the detail person and the president was happy to be there <laughs> and, and woe to anyone who disserved the president at a crucial time right you know and again but she had his back and so people saw her as sometimes being unfair but really a lot of times she was critical of people who weren't serving her husband in the way that she thought they should. So Ronald Reagan and women, and not in the way that many of you with your awful minds are thinking <laughs> about things, but Ronald Reagan and women in terms of, if you look at the staff around him, they were all men. Yeah. at the time, and that was a product of the times. But he did appoint Sandra Day O'Connor, yeah. who was pro-choice um, to the Supreme Court. A Republican president today would never do that. He did that. But how did he view women in professional life? Yeah. You know, at the, at the time, not many women served in high places in government. It's interesting, though, post-presidency, mm -hmm. I started with him, and there was a staff of about 15 of us. By the time I left, I think there was a staff of six of us, right. predominantly women. Right. So post-presidency, as, as times had changed and as women were stepping into more leadership roles in that in that capacity, he welcomed them. And what I love too is he was always willing to welcome young people to serve around yeah, him. I mean, he you did were that throughout his presence. I was very staff. young. I right. was very young, young and green, and stepping into a world that seemed far too big. Right. He was somebody though who gave you loyalty and gave you his trust, maybe even before you earned it or deserved it. And so I always appreciated that. I never expect. I never felt like his expectations were harsh on me, but I would never want to let him down. And so I was really hard on myself during those years trying to make sure I didn't, didn't mess anything up on his behalf. <laughs> and if he had had a third term, uh, would, have he, would, <laughs> would he have hired, as time evolved, would he have evolved and hired more women in leading roles? Oh, feel, absolutely. In, on his staff and in the cabinet? Absolutely. So yeah. Because we saw, you know, we, to your point, the historic appointment of the first woman on the Supreme Court. So that was something that he felt was very important right, right, to, do. To, to, yeah. to do. Interestingly, enough, though, as you talk about him serving, you know, in theory, a third term, that was one of the things he spoke out against post-presidency. And he had a short little list of things that he Again, spoke compared to at. the incumbent. Yeah. yeah. 22nd <laughs> Amendment, which limited the presidency to two terms. Right. Not that he wanted to serve for a third term, but he always believed that the people should be able to vote for the person that they wanted as many times well, as they wanted. And he grew up as an FDR Democrat, as uh, you know. That's true. But he, well, th th <laughs> he that amendment to the terms. Constitution was a result of FDR being right. elected four times. Right. And also he believed in limited government. He and did. limited means limited power. He did. And so did. that was, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some political critics of his and how they characterized him. I just remember, I forget exactly who, but someone prominent called him an amiable dunce. Right. And uh, he was really underestimated, wasn't he, Reagan? He was. And talk about that for a little bit. And he was okay with that. And I think he actually used that to his advantage. And when people underestimated his abilities, we would see him, you know, just out with them in beautiful ways. An example being the debates with Mondale, yes. where he asks about his age. And he's... A little, a little context on that. Yeah. 84 campaign. Uh, Reagan looked a little uncertain at some moments, like he stumbled over some words, and so, and he was the oldest president at that, to that time. Mm -hmm. And so people were wondering, second term coming up, what's it going to be like over four years? Is he too old to be president? So they have the debates, you know, in October and so forth. So the second debate, this comes up, and... 
Yeah, and he's asked the question, you know, are you worried about your energy, your ability to fulfill the second term? Are you worried that age is going to become an issue in this campaign? And he takes a deep breath and he looks over at his opponent, who's not exactly young, Walter Mondale, but he says to him, he says, well, I am not going to let my opponent's youth and inexperience become an issue in this campaign. And that was the end of that. And that, that was the, the end, of, end that. of it. Mondale laughed so hard at that <laughs> response did. that I think if the election wasn't won prior to that, that was the moment it was sealed. <laughs> absolutely. Look, I mean, we're calling it, you know, 35 years yeah. later. So yeah. it's really something. <laughs> um, Reagan as president, Reagan, and even in post-president, but how hard did he work to master the meetings that he had? I mean, the summits that he had, the Democrats, and how hard did he work in doing the business of the presidency? Yeah, I think back to, again, the amiable Dunst comment, people really underestimated his discipline and his dedication behind the scenes, and so I would watch him every night. I mean, every night he would get sent home with a briefing folder of every person that was coming to the office, who they were, why they were coming in, their background, their history, and and he would study that and he read absolutely read that and would always come the next day with little notes if he had a question about it right. or something to clarify. But then we would see him take this briefing paper and he'd put it aside. And so when this person came in the door, he could welcome them and greet them as if they were an old friend. And so he made it seem effortless. He made every meeting and summit and everything seem charismatic and sort of organic, but it really hid the fact that behind the scenes he was very disciplined and had done his homework. Yeah. so that he could enjoy the moment. This was quite a myth about Reagan, that mm -hmm. he was just lazy, you know, and just coasting. Yeah. And then uh, William Sapphire uh, worked on his diaries and published mm -hmm. the Reagan diary. And you read that, and you realize that he, this is a guy who thought a lot about what he was doing. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, whether you right. thought he was a radical conservative or whatever. Right. But he, he worked it, and, he, he, and he was very serious about it. There's a book that came out recently, too, called The Notes, and it published basically Ronald Reagan's handwritten notes that he had kept and collected over the years. And what I found most interesting about those is certainly he collected all kinds. Before you could you know Google search your favorite quote, he kept little note cards of quotes that he wanted to remember or use in speeches and recall. And one thing I found that was fascinating is some of these quotes were clearly things that he agreed with that he wanted to talk about. But a lot of things were things that he didn't agree with and that were actually in direct opposition to everything he valued and talked about. But then you realize the importance of him in understanding the opposition so that he could articulate a point of view in contrast to that. And so, again, people really underestimated that. His handwritten um, notes on his speeches, we know that he was very involved in speech writing, even as the president. Yes. You know, the Berlin Wall speech, yes. most notoriously. Um, the State Department, his own advisors said, don't say that line, it's too confrontational, it'll cause World War III. And he was convicted that that was right. And so he stood at the Brandenburg Gate and challenged Gorbachev to tear down that wall. And that was something he had handwritten in and they kept taking it out and he kept <laughs> handwriting it in. And when he stood there, he was gonna say it. <laughs> So Reagan is a great communicator, and, and you've cited a couple of examples. So my question is, how would he do today in today's social media world, and how would he face it, and would he also be the great communicator on Twitter and other platforms? Yeah. I don't know that he could tweet down the wall, but I do think he would be on Twitter <laughs> because that's especially where the next generation is. And he was one to always want to talk directly to the American people and to the world. He would call the cameras into the Oval Office. He would look through the lens of that camera, come into your living room on one of three dial <laughs> TV stations yep. and say exactly what he wanted to say, how he wanted to say it. So I have no doubt he would have been on social media and it would have been important to him to use that as a platform to advance his message. I think he would have used it probably very differently. He would have used it to inspire, to inform, to create a positive vision for America. Um, but I have no doubt he would have been on social media. That's really interesting. And wouldn't you have loved to follow his Twitter feed? He was the king of one-liners. More one than the present guy, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. In fact, if he can, comes back from the hereafter, I'd really yeah. like to get some tweets. I think there's some fake Reagans on Twitter, but I don't follow them. <laughs> Um, Reagan in fashion. He was mm -hmm. very fastidious. He, he was, was a very, you know, well-dressed man. Uh, tell, and, and you give Nordstrom. I hope Nordstrom is paying you for some of the yeah, plugs for the book. They yeah, they should. They really should. <laughs> Nordstrom, if you can hear us, pay yeah. this woman to represent you. When you read the book, you'll understand it. But tell us about his sense of fashion, what he wanted to accomplish with fashion, yeah. and how he presented himself yeah. publicly. He was very much, before it was 
in vogue, I guess, um, the whole idea of branding. His alignment of his branding was always consistent. And so whether it was with the words he chose to use or the way he dressed, he knew that people had one moment, usually, to meet Ronald Reagan. And some, of course, got to spend more time with him. But those moments when somebody got to meet the President of the United States for the one and only meeting, he wanted it to be special. He came in a coat and tie every single day, even post-presidency, which was pretty remarkable. Um, I actually tell a funny story yeah. um, about him coming into the office one day wearing something that I did not think passed muster. And I actually picked up the phone and I called Mrs. Reagan and I said, did you see your husband before he left the house today? <laughs> and she said, no, why? And I said, when he gets home, you will know. And she said, do I need to make something disappear? And I said, yes, and you'll have no trouble knowing what it is. He was wearing this bright orange cardigan sweater, which would have been fine for the golf course, but not for the office. He was golfing that day, but- um, He gave it to it Don was, Regan, then Don Regan was off. It yeah, was not happened. quite the way, but yes, he was impeccably dressed always. And I think it was just part of feeling like when they met the president, that he would be what they expected. But you also saw him informally, like at Rancho de Cielo, mm -hmm. he would dress in, I guess what are today he called would. mom jeans, right? And a shirt and a belt buckle and a yeah. you know, kerchief and everything. Yeah. But he felt that that worked for him too, right? Absolutely. And you know, we've seen those pictures of him chopping wood in just chopping a white t-shirt. Yeah. Um, and so, but that was appropriate for the ranch. And really that was his private off-camera time. And even though he received visitors up there, even when he received visitors, up there. I think I've got pictures in the book of Margaret Thatcher up there who is dressed in her matching suit <laughs> up at the ranch and President Mrs. Reagan are in their jeans and sweaters and their bandanas around their neck. Um, so that was definitely his appropriate ranch attire. Well, tell us about the ranch. I mean, you've been yeah, there and yeah. it, uh, it's, it's above Santa Barbara. Yes. And uh, just tell us about the, the place and the atmosphere and and yeah. what they found there when they could get there. Yeah, you'd probably be very surprised to know that you know his, his retreat was not something palatial or fancy. In fact, it was a little adobe home, less than a thousand square feet. I don't know what that converts to, uh, but very small, very modest, no heat, no air conditioning. They had fans and a fireplace. Really? And a lot of it he had built himself. They enclosed a screen porch. It was very informal, it was very humble. Um, in fact, President Mrs. Reagan had some of the stuff in there, you, I don't know how Mrs. Reagan tolerated it, but it looked like it was maybe from a yard sale or something. It was not fancy. But he loved going up there. He loved bringing people up there. And, and that was where his heart was. And it's interesting because now um, it's owned by an organization called the Young America's Foundation. And they bring student groups up there. And it, it's closed to anybody but people affiliated with that. But... I pull up onto that hilltop and I feel him there still. He called it his open cathedral. It's 600 and something acres on this hilltop that overlooks the ocean and it's beautiful, it's peaceful. And he used to love to go up there and ride horses and enjoy the great outdoors. And it, it's a very serene place yeah. and it's a very special place. You feel like he just walked out the door and he's coming back in from a ride. I remember he signed uh, 81, I was on the hill. Uh, it said that was his first legislative year and Congress passed a big reconciliation bill. My wife Leslie worked on that too. And um, so we're Democrats and, and what's in there is like, you know, gargantuan cuts to social programs and everything like that. Uh, I'll tell another story about that. But Reagan, he signed that bill at the ranch. He and, did. and there was fog swirling all around and everything. His dog sitting the behind dog him. The dog was sitting behind him. <laughs> um, but what was really interesting about that was uh, here was a, a president who had been elected in an overwhelming landslide. So he had a mandate to do what he wanted to do. And we Democrats were opposed on the Hill, but Leon Panetta, also from California, was chairman of the Budget Committee. Leon became uh, the head of the CIA. He was Secretary of Defense. He was Chief of Staff to Bill Clinton, and just an enormously accomplished man. And Leon was chairman of the Budget Committee. He said, we have new budget rules, and we got to make this process work. And so as much as we hated it, we had to figure out a way to implement the Reagan cuts, mm -hmm. and get, but still have it livable. And mm -hmm. that was done. And I just say that because that was then. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And we're at each other's throats all the time.
And we it's used really to be able to disagree politically without hating each other personally. Yeah. And now it's really the politics of personal destruction. And much to our demise as a nation, because we see people not wanting to go into public service because they're afraid of those personal attacks, true or not. Right. It doesn't matter. They're out to destroy you personally and ruin your family. And Tip O'Neill was speaker in Reagan. Famously, mm -hmm. they would have drinks. Okay, yeah. they'd kill each other during yeah, the day. They you would. Know? <laughs> and then they'd, they'd say, Tip, come on over to the Oval Office and let's just just have a drink and just yeah. talk about stuff and yeah. stuff. Look, he uh, he didn't have a Republican Congress. Uh, he had he controlled the Senate in 1980 to 86. It then reverted Democratic. The House was always Democratic, but Reagan's legislative record was stronger than than uh, anyone. Well, Obama exceeded it, but that was under full Democratic control. So yeah. it was really a different time with different dynamics that had different results for the country. And I thought those times were better, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah, I'd like it to reverse Democratic president. Right. You work with the, you get but the civility done, but and the respect and the ability to work across to political work across aisles the aisle, and get you know, things done. It's really yeah. something. Yeah. Um, Reagan and Gorbachev, um, he came out to see, you were there when he, he came did. to see Reagan. He did. And tell us, talk about the two of them together and how that was. Yeah. Well, it was interesting meeting Gorbachev for the first time because he comes walking toward you and he really does have a big purple birthmark <laughs> on his head. And you think, wow, this really is Gorbachev. Um, and kind of those, one of those many surreal pinch me moments where I think, how on earth does a girl from Orange County wind up greeting President Reagan you and Gorbachev together? You put your Communist Party card away. One of those, how does this even happen? But I used to love to watch Gorbachev with President Reagan because there was this sense of curiosity about him. So he would look at him and he'd think, he really is that happy and that charismatic and that personable. And so, you know, obviously they worked through a translator, although I think Gorbachev spoke more English than he let on to. Um, and so there was always that a little bit of disconnected conversation, right. but but there was a warmth to that. And you know, one of the things I was thinking of um, when you were talking about wardrobe that goes back to Reagan and Gorbachev's first meeting, yes. and how he used this strategically again in this brand. Their first meeting was in Geneva, and when you see Reagan walk out, here he is, very much older, a couple decades older than Gorbachev, yes. and he walks out coat and tie, no big overcoat, right. no hat, no scarf. He's on the upper step. Gorbachev walks toward him, bundled up as right. if it's very cold, and actually looks much older than Reagan. And Reagan has a smile and is standing tall, and they shake hands. And I think the the ice on the Cold War was beginning to thaw right then, um, and, yeah. and it certainly did. And they walked down to the boathouse where the two of them yes. met and had this private meeting. And so... Reagan always believed that there was nothing that couldn't be solved if two people sat across the table from each other. He believed in face-to-face -face diplomacy. Well, they, they went to Reykjavik, and that summit failed. Yeah. But ultimately, it, it led to a new arms agreement a couple years later. It did, so. yeah. And, you know, we've been talking about that, especially in light of the North Korean talks and things like that, where sometimes you don't get everything you want, and it's okay to walk away yeah. from the table. And that led, with Reagan, historically, to the INF Treaty just a year later. Um, Let's talk about uh, the library uh, mm -hmm. that President Reagan was able to open, and yeah. he had every other living president he with did. him that day. He did. What is it like when all the living presidents get together? <laughs> it's kind of like a Saturday Night Live skit. I don't know if anybody here knows what Saturday Night Live is, but they are caricatures, and to see them all in one place and interacting so is... So it was Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, and Bush. Yeah, and they really are caricatures, and... Nixon does kind of grovel when he talks and you know, but there's this great um, fraternity, I guess, you know, they are part of a club, I guess you could call it of only 45 men up to this point who have served in that capacity. And so you see this um, respect for he each other, this willingness to put partisanship do they aside. Yeah, do they shed their partisanship when absolutely, they get together? Absolutely. And especially for something like that, um, to be able to celebrate the presidency, um, they typically would attend each other's library openings or special events like that. There actually were six first ladies there wow. that day as well. So their five wives, as well as Lady Bird Johnson, Lady Bird. was there. Can you wow. believe she it? she was still alive. She was there. The Kennedy kids were there, Caroline and John F. Kennedy Jr. And so it was a very special yeah. historic day and one of those that you think for a kid who grew up just dreaming about politics, it was one of those surreal moments. That's but great. the library itself is beautiful and I think they've done a great job to 
not just have it be a tribute to one man, but really uh, it's the American experience during the 1980s. And it's a patriotic experience. You walk through, and again, he wanted people to feel like they were part of the accomplishments of the 80s. And so they've definitely captured it there in the library. Uh, I, I want to come back to that because I think there's been a lot of effort by a lot of people, particularly Jim Baker, to um, protect and enhance and deepen the Reagan legacy. Mm -hmm. there, I, there were a lot of people who worked on it. Yeah. I mean, uh, when he died, that funeral day was just amazing mm -hmm. from beginning to, you know, it began at the Capitol in Washington and uh, uh, the uh, casket lying in state in the rotunda, mm -hmm. the procession, and then it ends, you know, in California as the sun setting and he's buried, right? From sea to shining sea, yeah, <laughs> in one day, yeah. No, it's, and, but, but there were, but I, I do think there's just been enormous care taken by a lot of committed people to make sure that the Reagan legacy is presented in the best possible light to the American people. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting and I think slightly ironic because I don't think Ronald Reagan was consumed at all with his legacy. Oh, um, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I think that he was writing the legacy of his life with every day of his life. I see. And what people said about him after he was gone, that was up to so the, the body of work he had He figured he it done. would stand by itself. He figured it would stand alone. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes of Reagan um, was in a speech, one of his last public speeches given in 1992 at the Houston Republican National Convention. It, was, it wound up being his last formal public speech. And he in essence says, whatever else history may say about me when I'm gone, I hope it will say that I appealed to your best hopes, not to your doubts, and to your wildest dreams, and not to your fears. And so there was this aspirational, he That's wanted to good. appeal to your best hopes and to um, your dreams, not to your fear and your doubt. And so we look at today's politics. What do we do? Fear and doubt and division. And so Ronald Reagan, in essence, said, that's what I want my legacy to be. And right. I think that the way he lived his life has echoed that. Um, in 81, Reagan was the oldest person to be inaugurated president. Mm -hmm. um, was he worried about it? And uh, would he be surprised today that the leading contenders for 2020 are older than he was when he became president? Yeah, and Donald Trump actually was older when he was sworn in That's than right. Reagan was. You know, Ronald Reagan, much like President Trump, um, had incredible energy. He was somebody who was very active physically, yes. active mentally, and so he was still very engaged at that age. Um, one of the things that I think was such a great example of Reagan is that he showed us what it's like to live a long, full life. In the United States, we have this, you know, people think that at 62 or at 65, they kind of retire. Here was Ronald Reagan at 69, running for office, running to start the biggest job of his entire career, long after an age when a lot of people had taken their foot off the throttle and said, I'm just going to coast into my final years. And what a great example of living a long, full life. You know, Donald Trump, rumor has it, he only sleeps four hours a night. Right. Reagan was big about his sleep. He had to get his sleep. But um, during the day, he just, he pressed on. His schedule every day was very full, and he left it that way, and that, that kept him young. Right. Um, although he, he did have family time at home. I mean, he, he ended he the did. day, and he and Nancy would have dinner together. He, did. And... he would go home. He would swim in his pool. He would work out in his gym. He'd meet with a trainer. Um, he was very disciplined right. about working out as well, which I think it kept him physically absolutely, young absolutely. as well. Yeah. Uh, now, also part of the workout, he played golf. So my big he question did. is, did he cheat? <laughs> well, I don't know if you accuse the president of cheating. <laughs> <laughs> well, George, George Bush, the first Bush said, it's amazing to me how many people I, uh, beat me after I've become president, after I left the presidency. <laughs> Let's just say right. the ground rules were laid post-presidency <laughs> right. when he would play golf. They played nine holes, right. and he wouldn't keep score because he said, at my age, what do you have to prove? And if you <laughs> wanted to drop another ball, you could. Right. So those he were kind of the ground rules. So I don't think that was cheating. I think that was just maybe adjusting the no, rules a little bit. You know, who, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it, towards the end of the book, of course, is the beginning of the end of Reagan's mm -hmm. life with uh, Alzheimer's mm -hmm. being diagnosed. And I still, when I've read it the first time, uh, I mean, it just, uh, you tear up because mm -hmm. it, it was just so moving. But the words were, I now begin the journey that will lead me into the sunset of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell us about, you were there at that moment when mm -hmm. uh, the letter was composed and issued. And just tell us about your thoughts as that unfolded for 
the country and the world. Yeah, obviously a very difficult time. Um, when I heard the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, actually I didn't really even know what it was. Nobody knew what it was. You couldn't Google it. You couldn't go to the library and find any books about it. Um, it was kind of unknown. It was mixed in this idea of dementia or senility or old age and forgetfulness. And we actually have the Reagans to thank that they took something that was very private and personal and painful to them. And by going public with it, it's allowed so many families who have suffered in silence and in shame um, to be helped by it. And now, obviously, you go online and there's all kinds of information about Alzheimer's and I think we have him to thank. You know, a lot of people think that he left office, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he died and they don't remember that there's 15 years in there. And yeah. so five years into his post-presidency, he writes this beautiful heartfelt letter to the American people and to the world saying, my fellow Americans. And the quote you read that I believe at the end, after that he says, but I know for America, there will still be bright days ahead. And so again, even in that, very aspirational. Um, but those years obviously were very difficult, but he chose to continue as best as he could. So five years in, he writes this letter. The world starts saying goodbye to him. But really for the next five years, I'm still saying good morning to him yes. every day. And so he continued to show us that even that diagnosis is not a death sentence and what great optimism and faith he had continuing to move forward into those difficult years. So about 10 years in, so five years after his diagnosis, he leaves the public eye. He retires to home where he's cared for by Mrs. Reagan and other people who helped him. And those were difficult years, but I write about him because I wanted people to know that he was well cared for, that he didn't suffer. Obviously, the pain is for the people around him, but there was a beauty and an optimism and a faithfulness even in those difficult years. This is a little more personal, but uh, obviously a huge uh, burden for Mrs. Reagan, but how did, she cope? How did she cope with it? Yeah. How do you, how do you she did an amazing job, um, and we all looked to her for strength. Yeah. And we tried not to heap our own emotions upon her, but she was so faithful and loving to him to the very end. She was a great champion. I mean, anybody who watched any of the footage that final week of his passing, his burial, all the ceremony surrounding it, we just marveled at her strength. This was a woman who loved her husband, who wanted to see him remembered in a beautiful way, and she, she did that amazingly well. Uh, let's turn to the today and the future. Mm -hmm. um, you write towards the end of the book, um, we as individuals and as Americans not only don't want to get over Ronald Reagan, but we want to get back to Ronald Reagan. We want to get back to principled leadership and get back to optimism, faith, civility, and confidence in ourselves and our united purpose. So my, I have some questions about that. Mm -hmm. Can we get back to that with Trump as president? You know, I'm always an optimist, <laughs> and I think the pendulum always swings. Um, I actually think our president will be overwhelmingly reelected in 2020, and I think at that point, some of the resistors will just have to resign themselves to looking beyond Trump, and maybe that's a good thing. Um, and so I think that some of the resistance we've seen already within his own party is quieting because they're seeing the substance of what he's doing. Um, you know, I think our leaders in a way reflect us. And so if we don't like our leaders, maybe we need to look to ourselves. And we as Americans, do we value substance over sensationalism? Do we value real things over reality TV? I mean, we had two, two candidates running for office who by most accounts, both sides said, we don't necessarily like either one. So maybe we need to turn the mirror on ourselves as people and say, what do we value? Do we value principles? Do we value civility? Do we value um, the things that make America proud of itself? And if not, maybe we need to, instead of imposing all those obligations on our leaders, look to ourselves. Can we be more civil in the way we treat our leaders? Uh, this is a slightly more pointed question, mm -hmm. but uh, what, would, uh, what would Reagan really think of Trump? Because Trumpism is seen as the antipathy, uh, the contradiction to Reaganism and that, that a Republican presidential candidate would have ties to Russians to, on an American election, I think it was unthinkable to them, to, uh, to, to mainstream Republicanism and the institutions that were built after World War II and that endured in the Cold War and uh, trading, uh, global trade, free markets, open markets, immigration, Reagan signed immigration reform. Mm -hmm. So Trump represents the antithesis of all that. So what would Reagan honestly think, in your opinion, uh, 
And we'll never get a definitive answer because he's... <laughs> and I don't ever claim to speak <laughs> but, for him. <laughs> but what do you think he would think about Trump? Yeah. Well, we get one side of the story about Trump. And, you know, one of the reasons that people loved Ronald Reagan is because they loved themselves and they loved America and who we were on the world stage when he was president. Yes. There's a large number of people in America who are proud of who we are and proud of our president and proud of what we're standing for. And so it all depends on who you're listening to. And we know the ones with the loudest megaphone. And so we're only getting one side of the story. If you've ever seen a Trump rally, if you've ever been to any place that the president speaks and you see tens of thousands of people coming out and celebrating him as our president, I know the world doesn't see that. Most of America doesn't see that. Um, but there are a lot of people who are very proud of our president and what he's doing and what he's doing for America. You know, he's making some difficult decisions. The, the instance right now, especially what we're facing with China, but a lot of people think that, that that trade needed to be reset. And so as difficult as it is and as some of the backlash that we may face temporarily, that that relationship really needed to be reset. And so... Um, I don't think that there is as widespread negativity as we see on the global stage as there is from people all across the heartland of America who are very proud of our president and supporting him. Okay. I really wanted everyone to hear, you know, how you see it. And it's very, yeah. very important. Um, to close, uh, there's a, a, something you'd like to read from the book. Sure. And you mentioned... Um, and we're going to do questions and everything. It's going to go on for a while. That's yeah. good. Um, we can do questions. I can end with this later if no, you want. No, or, no, okay. No, right. Now it's good. Well, he mentioned the Reagan Library, and I wanted to read a passage from the book. And again, the book is not political. It's very personal. It's a character sketch. And I think this passage in a lot of ways kind of sums up um, what it was like to, to be in the presence of a man like this. So going up to the Reagan Library was always an experience with him. So one particular visitor who loved going up to the library time and time again was President Reagan himself. Whether it was to showcase this beautiful historic facility to a friend or a head of state or to open a new exhibit, there was nothing like walking through the museum with the president and seeing how people would respond to seeing him there. They had come to learn about him, never imagining they would ever meet him. It was a little like that movie, Night at the Museum, for some guests there, where history literally came to life. People responded in two distinct ways when they saw him. The first group, as I had done when I first met him, took a step back as if observing him from a distance was enough, or perhaps too much. The second group made a beeline for him, sticking out their hand to meet him, which drew a quick response from the Secret Service. It was as if they had rehearsed this moment a thousand times and were fully prepared when their chance meeting occurred. There wasn't much in between, an interesting though unscientific observation of mine. Kids, I noticed, usually fell into the second category, bold and unafraid to approach him. They loved him, and he loved nothing more than being surrounded by a group of giggling school kids at his library. I usually had to pull him along to keep him on schedule. The kids would all boo me, and the president would just laugh, saying, pointing to me, saying, she's telling me I need to go now. <laughs> I better do what she says. One time we were getting ready to leave the library, and the, sp the sky was especially clear, and the sun was beginning to set. We saw a distant glimmer of the ocean in the distance. It felt as if we were on top of the world and could see forever, atop a steep slope down to distant houses and fields. The president paused for a moment. As we stood silently side by side, he looked over his left shoulder at his future memorial site, which was poorly disguised behind a few low hedges, the place where he and Mrs. Reagan would eventually be buried. He squared his body so that it perfectly matched the angle of the burial site, and he turned to me and he said, I think I'll enjoy this view. <laughs> he laughed to diffuse an otherwise awkward moment, and in spite of making me smile on the outside, just the thought of the day when we would lay him to rest there pained me deeply. He, however, seemed unaffected by the joke, comfortable to the core in who he was and in the remarkable life he had been given. I savored this quiet, peaceful moment and lingered extra long that day to enjoy the incredible view, both the beautiful landscape in front of me and the iconic profile to my left lit beautifully with the warm glow of the setting California sun. Very nice. Thank Very you. nice. Um, the floor, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you. Uh, the floor is open for questions. Please, don't be shy. Please. Yes, sir. Uh, hi, Peggy. Um, what is it about Reagan and uh, hiring people called Peggy? Um, uh, but uh, um, my question is about uh, 
I guess, some of the key decision points that he faced in his presidency. Um, uh, you mentioned one about uh, writing tear down this wall back in the speech against all the advice from the State Department. Uh, Bruce mentioned the Reykjavik summit where basically the State Department again said, take the deal, you know, they're, they're offering you everything. All you have to do is give up um, Star Wars. Reagan said no because he knew that would put more pressure on the, the Soviet system and a year later he was vindicated and got what he wanted. Earlier in the um, his first term, he uh, pursued tax relief, um, which, you know, even George Bush described as sort of voodoo economics in the <laughs> primary. Uh, it was pretty radical at the time. He um, changed the world, in, in my opinion, vastly for the better by defeating communism, saving the American economy, but he was up against prevailing orthodoxy. He was this sort of gentlemanly character, but... Um, there would have been all these pressures sort of saying, don't do that, don't do that. Can you shed any light about the internal dynamics within the Oval Office, within the inner circle? Presumably not every advisor around him was in lockstep. There would have been a lot of sort of flurried conversations and calls and what have you as to are we really going to, you know, charge over the hill in the way we thought? How did he, you know... Can you just shed any light into some of those key decision moments in history where the whole world was saying, don't do this? He said, no, this is my conviction, we're doing it, uh, as to what went on and, and how he handled it as the president. Yeah, sure. Um, while I wasn't there in the White House when all these things were taking place, I do have a sense of his decision-making style, and it was very important to him to take in all the information. Um, like we talked about earlier, he, he was a deep reader and a deep thinker, much to the, the surprise, surprise of, of a lot of people. Um, but he really did listen to his advisors and took that into account. But at the end of the day, he had a political instinct, that, and he had a, a guiding North Star. I guess you could call it, that that led him above anything else. And one of, of course, his key principles was freedom. He was a freedom fighter. He wanted to bring freedom around the world, and he believed it wouldn't come through him, but that once people get a taste of freedom in a country, they can't help but want more. And so people in each of those countries would be the ones to bring about freedom. And so he just had to inspire it and to plant the seed and to allow it to happen. So he did have great political instincts, and I think he was not consumed by the polling. Um, I don't know if you saw my Fox News piece I did this week yeah. when we talked about the, the experts getting it wrong, but he wasn't consumed by polling. He internally knew what direction he wanted to go. He was convicted that it was right, and while he would listen to people, ultimately it was his decision, and ultimately he was willing to take responsibility for that. To your point about the economics, especially at the beginning, the Reagan Reaganomics or whatever they called it, people were very nervous because two years in, the economy was really really suffering and yet within giving it a little bit of time allowing things to turn around he goes to the G7 summit and Helmut Kohl says tell us about the American miracle and so he he was convinced that that was right even though <laughs> we definitely saw a downturn before it ticked back up yeah <laughs> yeah we'll come to you Hi. My name is Anna. Um, I'm from South Dakota, the heartland. Oh, terrific. Uh, but I've been here for a bit. And I worked in politics over there and worked in politics here. And as everyone knows. When you knows, figure it out, let us know. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you have do. a great new governor, Christy Noem. <laughs> oh, she's yeah. lovely. Anyway, um, she's lovely. as anyone who's worked in politics knows and works for a politician knows that there are things that they really like to do and things that they hate to do. Yeah. So you already mentioned it briefly about President Reagan loving to go into his library and showing people mm -hmm. around. What were the things that he just would kind of roll his eyes and sigh and know he had to do, but just really, really didn't want to have to go to? Because that just happens no matter who you are. Yeah. And if you are Reagan. Yeah. Um, I think by the end of his post-presidency, he was rather tired of signing his name. And so one day as he's signing his name, you know, for the hundredth time that day, he looks at me and he says, sometimes I wish my name was Bob Hope. <laughs> it was a much shorter name. <clears throat> so I think that was one of those things. He was, he was always willing to do it, but I think that kind of got old after a while and he wished he had a shorter name. <laughs> I, I read that he um, didn't like confrontation so that if he had a 
problem with you personally. He did not actually deliver the hard message. Others did. He Is did that right? not prefer to do that. I will tell you his number one pet peeve, though, was running late. Mm -hmm. And he was appalled when people would be late for appointments and um, especially with him I mean <laughs> especially with him because he would never be late because right. it was a sign of respect to him and he knew if somebody came late and it was interesting to watch because sometimes regardless of who they were if they were late and he had an appointment afterwards he would kind of show him the door <laughs> and if he didn't he'd expect me to because he was going to keep on schedule because that was respectful to the next person who right. had scheduled his time so running late was definitely one of those things that was very important to always be prompt okay our friend up here um, has a question i remember reading a biography of president reagan called dutch uh-huh yeah and it was a very Edmund Morris. unusual mm -hmm. mixture sort of uh -huh. a fiction yes and biography because the gentleman who wrote it said, I couldn't write it any other way, he was such an enigma, but I had to pretend that I'd known him as I'd grown up and I was a journalist that uh, knew him as we were growing up and sort of kept in touch and that. And, but I'm not sure from what you say, but you quite agree, but he was such an enigma as all that. Yeah. Well, Dutch, written by Edmund Morris, as you know, um, when it came out, it was widely criticized. Um, it was his. It was meant to be his official biography, but the author had taken liberties to write himself into the story, so it became this hybrid blend of history and fiction. And so it, it was widely criticized. And I think that Edmund Morris... The part he couldn't understand is there was a beautiful simplicity in Ronald Reagan in the sense that he was transparent, he was authentic. Everything he was on the inside was apparent on the outside. And Edmund Morris, I don't think, could believe that somebody actually was an open book like that, especially somebody who had served at that highest level because politics is so shrouded in secrecy and deal-making and things like that. I don't think that he could embrace the fact that Ronald Reagan was truly what you saw was what you got. There was no disconnect between his public persona and his private persona. And so I think he missed the very essence of Ronald Reagan. And since he couldn't grasp that, he had to fabricate something. So that was that yeah. was a huge disappointment. Yeah. Other questions, please. Peter. Thanks. Thank, thank you very much for your talk, and I'm thank looking forward you. to reading your book. Thanks and, for coming out. And um, the Reagan Library is one of my favorite places in the oh, United terrific. States. Oh, terrific. You've been there. I suspect <laughs> some people here might have the same view. Um, you spoke about Brand and the importance of presentation and how he presented himself and dressed and the thing about what they wore at the ranch and what they wore in the office. And... One of the things that really struck me visiting the Reagan Library was that the image chosen to greet you is the statue of the president in his ranch wear and that the hat. And I wonder if, because you would have been there while the, the imagery of the museum was being developed and debated, so I'm wondering whether or not there was any sort of contest about what would that image be? Would would the statue be the suit, or would the statue be the the, the ranch? What, how? What? Or was was he very clear from the beginning about that, or were there people going on and oh, it should be the suit, or how how was a decision like that made? Because I think it was genius mm -hmm. that you arrived there to expect to see this, you know, the guy in the suit, but in yeah. fact it's it's not. Yeah. Um, and then you see the suit inside. But can you tell us anything about? how that decision was made or was it an easy one? Yeah. You know, I think that the rant, the um, library does capture both sides of him. There was this formality, but there was also this familiarity. And I think anybody who watched Ronald Reagan from afar actually felt like they knew him and felt like he knew them and cared about them. And so there was this warm connectivity. The rant, uh, I mean, the library itself actually has kind of that California casual style to it. And that was really the the casual elegance, I guess, of the Reagans, where their their home was that way. It was very beautifully appointed, 
but at the same time was very welcoming. Our Century City office that he had post-presidency, there was a formality to it, but there was also a warmth. There was bronzes and plants and lots of light coming in. And so it was a place that even though you knew it was very important, you could feel comfortable there. And I think that was what they wanted to capture. So you're greeted by this statue of him in his ranch where and you walk inside and there's a beautiful portrait of him in coat and tie, but with this warm big smile on his face that you couldn't help but smile back at. So, Trent, Trent Peggy, um, you alluded to, or alluded to, touched on the relationship between Bush 41 and VP to Ronald Reagan, and I just thought you might want to elaborate more on that, especially in the after years when he became the president. Yeah. You know, Bush 41, um, who was his vice president, they had a wonderful, warm relationship. They obviously spent a lot of time together in the White House, but even post-presidency, I used to love to see when um, President Bush, the sitting president, would come to visit President Reagan in in L.A. You know, it would have been easy to say, hey, I'm going to be in town. Come on over to the hotel, because as you know, moving the a president sitting president is, is not easy. It's deal. this motorcade. And um, one of my favorite favorite stories about um, President Bush that I wrote about after he passed away was President Bush is coming up to President Reagan's Century City office and Ronald Reagan and I are in his office and we're looking out the window and you can see this motorcade winding through the streets coming and as we soon as we see it pull up to the building and the president gets ready to greet him President Bush comes barging through the office doors all the Secret Service all the staff and he he yells out he says now where's my president <laughs> well this was the sitting president of the United States so there was always this sense of mentorship, of deference, of respect, and watching the two of them together was just warm and wonderful. You knew that they really enjoyed each other's company and had great respect for each other. And one of the most moving tributes, I think, at Reagan's funeral was President Bush, who talks about the dignity and the respect that he learned from watching and, President and Reagan. And when President Bush passed away, a lot of people lament that those times are gone. Again, yeah. no matter where you stand on the spectrum, you just want for something better in yeah. our political yeah. discourse. And I would say are. that there are a lot of good things happening and maybe they're not at the national level, but if we look at the state level, you know, Christy Nome, who's the newly elected governor of South Dakota, we look at somebody like Scott Walker, you may disagree with his policies, but such a great person and a nice man and civil and respectful. And so we see at the state level, there are a lot of people involved in the political scene who still mirror that which we want. And so maybe we just need to continue to elevate some of these people. I'm always for more. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, that you're still working in the political sphere. Mm -hmm. um, you've spoken so eloquently and with such love for, for Ronald Reagan. Do you see anybody at the federal level now that you are genuinely inspired by in that same way? Not just this person's policies, but you just feel that they're the you know that they're the real deal, and mm -hmm. you really would be passionate about maybe working for them or you know. Ronald Reagan kind of ruined me because I will never have <laughs> a better boss <laughs> than that, um, and in fact they. Um, one of the butlers at the White House said, as Ronald Reagan was leaving the White House, he said, they broke the mold when they made Ronald Reagan. And they really did. I mean, he truly was one of a kind. He was maybe one in a lifetime, maybe one in a generation. Um, there was something very special about him, but he was the right man for the right time. And so I believe that we will have future leaders who will be the right person at the right time um, and that the nation will once again embrace them. You know, for me personally, I don't know. It's going to be hard to, to ever top Ronald Reagan in the sense that at the time, of course, I knew he was a great man. I had had admired him as a great president, but now history's looking back at him as a giant among greats. And I think both sides of the political aisle, again, politics aside, are looking back and admiring him and appreciating him for at least the civility and the dignity he brought to the office. So I don't know if I'll ever find another one. Not that I'm looking. <laughs> I think that's, oh, okay, one last question. Two last questions, and then we'll because that was a pretty good note to end on, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to tie up something <laughs> nice and neat. <laughs> um, Peggy, thank you so much, not only for being here tonight, but also sharing your insights in your writing. I'm interested, though, as someone who's obviously been on a 
personal staff to such a significant figure, how you grappled with the desire to make your personal insights kind of public and on the record. Obviously, there's a huge tradition of of writing about experiences working for very interesting people. And I know you talk in the start of your book about coming to this decision after Nancy Reagan had died. So they haven't been around to read what you've written about them both. And I'm interested in just that process of making the decision to commit your, your recollections to the public record. Yeah. I was reluctant to do so, um, but I did talk to Mrs. Reagan before the book went to print, just in, in concept about it, and that I had been doing more writing about her husband, and she said she was very proud of the fact that I was out there speaking and continuing to be a steward of the experiences that I had and tell the story and hopefully promote and perpetuate his legacy. Um, I was telling Bruce beforehand, when the book came out, I found myself in a very interesting spot, though, because I had always been the woman behind the scenes and visibly invisible in the sense that the president would look to the corner and, you know, hopefully I had whatever he needed or had anticipated what he was going to ask me. But I was never used to being asked my opinion. And in fact, when I submitted my first writing sample um, to the publisher, he came back to me and he said, Peggy, do you know what a memoir is? <laughs> you actually have to write yourself into your own story. And so trying to find my own voice and trying to find my own story and tell my story alongside his has been a very interesting journey. But he gave me great advice, my senior editor, and he said, you know, most people can't relate to being president of the United States, but everybody will be able to relate to one part of your story. So tell your story alongside his so that you're not an interruption to the story, but you're the very lens by which they get to see him as you saw him. And so stepping into a space where there's a thousand books about Ronald Reagan, I didn't know that I would be able to convey how I saw him, but I really tried to just put on the lens of how I saw him and what I witnessed during those 10 years and just be the storyteller of having that front row seat and what I saw and learned and witnessed, and that's what I've shared. Very good. Last question. Thank you very much. Um, a week ago, we were privileged to be introduced to the Manchurian candidate by um, Senator, former Senator Stephen Lucy. And um, as they say, a week is a long time in politics. Um, it's a bit head-spinning, to be honest. Um, as a slightly old-fashioned lefty, we thought we were going to be talking about a Labor government, etc., etc. Now, Bruce has been on hand at the coalface looking at how things have changed. And as someone interested in politics, say, in the UK, Canada, US, etc., we've seen different coalitions of voters put together at different times. From, say, 1865 with Lincoln, with a new Republican Party, and now you see the Democrats basically got a lock on the black vote, etc. Over the passage of time, things have changed enormously. You alluded to Ronald Reagan's earlier years when he grew up in the Midwest, would have been an FDR Democrat. Yeah. Yet he's the poster boy for the past 30 years. So we see the two last GOP races. As an icon, they all hark back to, oh, I want to be a Reagan. They wanted to capture the spirit of Reagan, yeah. even if their policies could have been diametrically opposed to it. Right. Now, in this country people are trying to grapple with the challenge of a former worker-based party trying to put together, like in the US you use the term rainbow coalition. Mm -hmm. How do you think um, Reagan would have reacted to putting together on a policy front, as well as appealing emotionally, to a new coalition of voters? We've had people talk about Trump getting votes in, um, say, for example, um, the old Rust Belt right. Right. parts right. of the region. Yeah. And now that dynamic changed. Right. But he cobbled together an electoral college vote with a deficit of something like two or three million votes. Mm -hmm. How do you... Do you have any thoughts about how people want to cobble together new coalitions or is it always shifting sands? 
Yeah. I think how things are always changing. You know, you look at Ronald Reagan and people asked, you know, why did why did you leave the Republican Party? I mean, the Democratic Party to become a Republican. And he always said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. And I think that there's a lot of people in the U.S. who are looking to the 2020 election and realizing that I'm not sure that <laughs> they're in lockstep still with the Democratic Party. And a lot of people feel like um, they are, the Democratic Party is leaving them. And so things change, times change. It will be interesting to see um, in the US if the two-party system survives. Um, if it survives in this current form, uh, what what we coalesce around the Republican Party isn't necessarily coalesced around Donald Trump, and yet we have seen him bring in voters into the fold who haven't voted in a very long time, if ever. And so there, I think, are new coalitions being built all the time, and the parties do change, and they find their new consensus of voters that they can find and it'll be interesting to see in 2020 because I I don't know that a lot of the candidates currently are representing mainstream democratic thought and will they come around toward that or will they continue to veer left and regardless of who follows when when uh, the nomination fight for Trump was going mm -hmm. on I really thought that the uh, mainstream Republican Party would rise up against Trump coalesce and defeat him that yeah. didn't happen so I think the Republican Party can only be reformed if it loses in 2020 and loses badly, and then they have to rethink where they're going. And then Democrats at the same time have to look at, well, where are we going and can we get the middle? And so if the danger for them, if they nominate someone too far to the left, they will lose. And that will leave uh, them and the country in a terrible shape. Yeah. So those, I think, are the dynamics that are unfolding. We're going to see what happens. Uh, the Democratic field, I kind of like, I mean, it's big. I mean, it's really big, but I, it, it's a quality field. And, and I think, I hope it bubbles up instead mm -hmm. of descends down into the pit mm -hmm. and you're left with um, the worst co common denominator. Yeah. So the, the, those are the contours of it. A lot of people may not realize, obviously, because you don't haven't followed American politics for decades, but we look back on Reagan with such fondness, and yet you may not know that in 1976, he was not the party's choice. And in 1980, actually, when he won in a very strong election, the party wanted George Bush, ironically, that he wound up you know, choosing to be his vice president. And so here's a man that, to your point, candidates decades later are still saying, looking back and saying, we want to be like Reagan, and yet at the time, the party didn't necessarily embrace him as the front runner, but we're glad for history that um, he was an example of leadership of the highest level and represented a dignity of the office and civility regardless of politics. And we're glad for the United States Study Center that you're here tonight with us. Thank you so, Thank much, you so much for having Peggy. me. I really appreciate wonderful. it. Thank you. Thank you for coming out.